All right, the reading we'll be doing today is from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, so please follow along. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, that is page 841. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few on a his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among, about, uh, among them in the villages teaching. Appreciate you reading that text for us, David. We're actually going to be in a different text for the sermon. That's going to provide uh, that text that David just read is going to provide some background. So I'm going to encourage you to go to John 7. John 7. This is page 892 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided for you there in the seats. We're continuing our series, The Messiah's Family Tree. Last week we looked at two puzzled parents. And we saw how that uh, there's that inclusio in Luke 2 of how Mary treasuring up and pondering these things in her heart and all the different responses that uh, Mary and Joseph had in between those two, uh, those, two te- those two phrases there in verse 19, verse 51 of that text. So as we move throughout the family tree, and obviously we can't go through all of the family tree, right? Uh, but uh, we are going to go uh, look at several uh, skeptical siblings today, several skeptical siblings. I don't know if you've ever been on a road trip and maybe you've fallen asleep. Uh, hopefully you're the passenger in this scenario. <laughs> and then you woke up with no, no idea where you were at, right? And you kind of look around and you kind of think, you know, where, where am I? What, what? And he asked the driver, where are we at? And you're looking for signs and things like that. Then after a minute, you, you kind of figure out, okay, here's where we're at. Um, you can figure out by maybe some place markers or some familiar territory or what the driver has told you. Now, the reason why I mention that is because you, you don't know where you're at because you haven't really been aware of the journey up until that point. And, and sometimes when we do a, a sermon like this and we just drop into John chapter 7, uh, we don't really know where we're at. Right, And so I'm going to take just a, a few minutes in, in the beginning part of this to just provide a little bit of context and get you caught up to speed on where we're at in John's gospel here in chapter 7. So in verse 1, I'm going to, I'm going to read the text uh, and then, then I'll make some comments. So verse 1 of John 7 says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, and your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. 
Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So the context of this, we we drop in 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 verse 1 of chapter 7, we see after this here. So what is that talking about there? Well, that connects us to chapter 6. And chapter 6 has some events in there like the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, the bread of life. Also significantly in chapter 6, we see many of his disciples uh, no longer follow him. We see this uh, in the end of, of chapter 6 here, in verse 66, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, you have to remember the word disciple there is a generic term, which means learner or a follower. And so Jesus had, during his earthly ministry up in Galilee here, he had this time of people following him and kind of seeing what was going on here, more than just the 12 disciples. So when you come into the New Testament, you're reading the Bible and you see the disciples uh, in the term of like a, a title that's referring to the 12, but then when you see something like this, you see that it's referring to more in a generic sense here. So after this, chapter 7, this is connected to these events that have just happened in chapter 6 here. We also know that in chapter 6 and verse 4, that Passover was happening, and in here the Feast of the Booths is happening here. So we know from historical record that that's about six months. So we're talking about six months uh, of time that has passed here. Uh, Galilee here, it says that he went about in Galilee. Now, just a way of reminder for biblical geography, that if you picked up a, a, a handout, then you'll see this map on there. If not, uh, I can maybe point out to you, hopefully you see this something or another. But uh, right here is like the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River, and this is the Dead Sea. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. So if you want to know like, you know, Israel geography, those are the, the four things you'd want to know right exactly where they're at. Sea of Galilee is up here. Sometimes in the Bible calls it the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, some translations. That's talking about the same sea. Jordan River here, then, of course, the Dead Sea. And yes, you truly can float in the Dead Sea. Back in 2005, my wife and I were in Israel, and I floated in the Dead Sea. It's an amazing experience. So just in case you wonder if it was true or not, it is true. So here up in this region here, this is the region of Galilee. Galilee is not a city, it's a region, okay? So if you read about this, it's talking about all the different cities up in here, uh, in this area. Capernaum is one of those cities. That is a city that will pop up quite a bit in Jesus' ministry here. Uh, Lots of events happen up in this region here. Down here is Judea, okay? This is where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem's right down here, okay? So between, let's say, Capernaum and and Jerusalem, it's roughly 90 miles or so, give or take, okay, just to give you a context of how far that this is. In between uh, Galilee and Judea is Samaria, okay, that's another region that pops up in New Testament uh, writings as well. Uh, There was lots of hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews, and so often they would cross the Jordan River, come down here, cross back, and this is why in John chapter 4, 
um, when Jesus says, I must need to go through Samaria here, it was kind of a, a, a shocking thing because most times they would go around it because they didn't want to have the conflict or the contact with the Samaritans. But Jesus in John 4 goes right through Samaria, uh, Samaria and then he meets this woman at the well. You might, some of you might remember that, that, that story there. So just to give you an idea of when you're reading this, we're just kind of dropping in here. Where are we at here? After this, he went about in Galilee. So for about six months, he's just going from city to city here, up in this region up there, and he's teaching, and uh, we read in Matthew's account some of the things that happened during this time, but he stays up there. He does not go down to Jerusalem here. Uh, the Feast of the Booths and the Tabernacles, uh, this is one of uh, three feasts that uh, all adult uh, Jewish males were required to do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Okay, and so uh, we have Passover, we have uh, Pentecost or Feast of Weeks, uh, we have Passover, and then we have uh, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, uh, the, the same name uh, or same feast, two different names. Uh, this was a time where they would remember the Exodus. They would remember how Jesus, or excuse me, how God led them out of uh, the uh, Egyptian captivity, and uh, they would have to live in makeshift houses. And so for about uh, six or seven days when they were celebrating this, they would make houses. They would make little lean-tos and things like that, and they would stay in the countryside. Or if they lived in the city, they would go up onto the roof, and they'd make a lean-to, and they would stay in this booth for these seven days uh, celebrating this feast. And then the eighth day, there was this massive celebration. It was an incredible feast and a great celebration. In fact, uh, Josephus, uh, a first-century Jewish historian, first and second century Jewish historian, what he says is that of the three feasts, the three pilgrimage feasts, uh, this one here was the most popular among the people, uh, this Feast of the Booth. So it was a very, lots of people were coming to this, okay? So this is what's happening. This is what's going on here. Uh, I told you it's about six months later from John chapter 6, verse 4. Then John, almost in passing here, he, he kind of gives the statement here in verse 5 where he says, not even his brother's believed in him. So it's true that Jesus had half-siblings. If you're coming from maybe a Roman Catholic background, that may be somewhat surprising to you. I remember having a conversation with someone who grew up Catholic and was, in, was continuing uh, in, in that, tr- that faith tradition, and we were having this conversation, and I happened to mention Jesus' siblings, and she stopped me, and she said, well, no, Jesus didn't have any siblings. And, you know, I, I showed her in the scriptures. She, I said, no, they do. She, I said, the Bible teaches that. She goes, no, no, no. So I remember opening the scriptures to the text of, uh, 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 David read for us a few minutes ago, read it uh, to her, and I remember her response. Uh, she said, shame on my priest. <laughs> I said, well, I'll let you two work that out. <laughs> you know, but I'm just, I'm just telling you it's in the Bible, okay? That's, I'm just, that, that's all we're saying here. Um, and so, but it is true. Jesus did have half-siblings here. Uh, the Bible's very clear about that. And when, when John says it's almost, it's almost, I, I don't know if you, you, if it affects you this way, but as I read this, my heart just almost like sinks a little bit when I read that. Not even his brother believed in him. You know, the term brothers there could also include sisters, just so you know. It's a generic term in Greek, so it could be brothers and sisters. Um, And uh, so I'll be referring to Jesus' siblings mostly throughout the sermon. Sometimes I'll say brothers, but just understand that at certain points it could also include sisters as well, or half-sisters. 
Now, the reason why verse 5 is important there, because you have to understand something about John. And again, I've given you a bunch of information, background, just so that we can kind of understand this text better. Um, John is writing to a universal audience. We see this in chapter 21. He tells us why he's writing the book. He's writing to a universal audience. So he's explaining things along the way. That's one of the reasons why when you see it says in verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, if he was writing to a Jewish audience, he wouldn't have to explain that. Okay, but he's writing to a universal audience, and so he's explaining these things all along the way so they understand what's happening here. Okay, and so this is this is this this when he puts in verse five here for not even his brothers believed in him, he's putting that statement in there to inform the tone and the meaning of the first the verses before that, and we're going to look into that in just a few minutes here. But just understand that that's why he put that in there. He put it in there so that we would, as we're reading from more of a universal perspective, we would see, okay, so what the brothers have just said, what they've just done, um, now, now, now I understand why they're saying that. And, I, and I can, we can read the tone. We can read the thought behind what they were suggesting. And again, we'll get into that a little bit here. So the reality is, is that Jesus is a dividing point for many families. And it continues to this day. In fact, Jesus himself said that he came as to bring a sword that will divide families. And some of you may have this in your family. Some of you may be experiencing this today where you have family members who are not believing in Jesus Christ, who reject that, who may even think that you're a fool for believing in Jesus Christ. And so my prayer is as we look through this sermon today, as we look at this text of Scripture, and we examine Jesus' idea that his, his, his brothers here, his sisters, his siblings here, in their unbelief, that we can find some instructions here. But how I want to go about this today is that um, I'm going to ask a simple question today. And, and, and the question is going to be so important that I'm going to ask it twice, actually, making it both the main points in our sermon here. And so when you, if you're looking at the outline I provided for you there in the handout, you'll see point one and point two have the same, uh, same they're the exact same point, okay? That's not me being lazy, okay? That's not me saying, you know what, I'm tired of preparing the sermon here, let's just do the same point again, and hopefully no one notices, okay? No, there's, very, there's some intentionality behind this here. So the question of the day is this, how could we end up like Jesus' siblings? That's a question I want all of us to wrestle with, okay? How is it that we could end up just like Jesus' siblings? So I'm going to pause. I'm going to ask God's blessing and prayer. We got all that kind of background done. Hopefully it's a good running start and you get some more of the context here. You understand what's happening in the text and we'll go forward. Let me pray. God, we've taken extra time longer than normal on the front end to, to set the scene and to explain some of these important things about this text. And I pray that's helpful. God, I pray that this time, as, as I have the, 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 the awesome privilege to, to teach from your word now, I got, God, I pray that I'd be led by your spirit and that those who are listening here, whether in person here or online, that you would remove distractions and your spirit would guide them and that this would be just a wonderful time to, uh, for us to, be, to spend in the word here. We know that only you can bring spiritual growth. Only you can bring conversion. And we're asking for that today. We're asking for people to 
bow the knee and, and follow you and, and repent of their sins, maybe even for the first time. And we're asking for others to just to grow in you and to love you supremely. God, this, this is what's on our heart. But we know that we can't do this without your Spirit's enablement. I can't teach in a way that would be helpful or relevant in any way without your Spirit's guidance. And so that's why we pause now to ask for this. At the end of the day, would you please be glorified and honored? In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So how can we end up like Jesus' siblings? In this text here, there's, there's, I'm going to offer three, three ways here. First of all, how could we end up, well, by being familiar with Jesus, but not actually knowing Him. Okay, think about it this way. Jesus' brothers and sisters, they lived with Him for about 20 to 30 years before the crucifixion. Somewhere in that frame. We don't know. We know that Jesus was the oldest, okay? But we don't know exactly how old the rest of the half-siblings were. We don't know anything about their birth dates or anything like that. But we know that it's reasonable to think for 20 or 30 years, these people would have known Jesus. I mean, think about it this way, that they shared part of His DNA. These are people who walked this earth that shared some of the DNA of Jesus Christ. They looked similar to Him. They would know what his favorite foods were. If, if, if they heard Jesus' voice or his laugh from across the room, they would instantly recognize that, oh yeah, that's my brother, that's Jesus. I mean, they were very familiar with him. And yet, apparently, yet according to the texture, they didn't know who he truly was. How is that possible? How is it possible that they can know so much about Jesus, but not truly know him because they didn't have saving faith. That's why. They, they, they knew details about him. They knew facts. They knew trivia. They, they knew th- uh, 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 data about him, but they didn't know him as who he truly was, and that is the Savior of the world, the one who could take away their sin, the one who would be the Messiah, who is the Messiah, the one who would, who would, who would solve the world's greatest problem that's called sin. They didn't see Jesus as that. They didn't yet believe in him. Maybe that's some of you here today. Maybe some of us, were, 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 we know a lot of facts about Jesus, and maybe we have a lot of verses memorized, or, or perhaps, you know, you could enjoy, and I wrote this in my notes here, perhaps you could enjoy reading about the hypostatic union of Christ, and maybe even give a lecture on the differences between the active and passive obedience of Christ, and you have this, this theology down, and it's so good, and you love reading about those type of things, but yet it is possible to know all those things and be able to communicate and, and write on all those things and not truly know Jesus. How do I know that? Well, I mean, history is full of examples like this. One, I'll just give you one, a a guy by the name of John Wesley. Maybe you've heard of him. Wesley was used by God to write lots of music and with his brother Charles and uh, a tremendous uh, gifted speaker. But you know, it wasn't, I mean, he was on his way. He was already a minister, and he was on a ship, and he was on his way to another place to minister, and, and the, the, the wind was uh, howling, and the sea was rough, and he was scared out of his mind. But then there were some other Christians on board, and they just had this peace. And he couldn't understand, how could they have peace? And so they asked him. They asked him a simple question. They said, well, do you know Jesus as your Savior? You know, Wesley will write later on that, he, he, it was like a, an arrow hit him in the, in the heart. He had known a lot about Jesus and even taught people about Jesus. But he didn't know him as a Savior. 
How could we end up like Jesus' siblings? Well, we can know a lot of facts about him, but not truly know who he is. You know, it's easy at Christmas time to sing songs. It's easy at Christmas time to, to know the story, and you know, it's rehearsed in different ways, and, and sometimes it's easy to kind of mentally even check out during that time because you've heard it so many times. We're so familiar with it. My prayer is that this Christmas season, the wonder, maybe for the first time, comes into our souls. I'm not talking about just Christmas magic. I'm talking about this idea of who Jesus really is, the Messiah, the one who will save you from your sins if you believe in him. There's a lot of people that know about Jesus, but they don't know who truly was. That's one way that we could be like Jesus' siblings here in this text here. Uh, what, what's another way? Well, by prioritizing our perspective over Jesus's. Okay, now where do I get that? Well, look at this. In verse 3, he says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, and your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now remember, verse 5 puts in, the reason why John puts this in there, it, it colors and it puts into context what, what his brothers are saying here, verse 3 and 4. You see, the siblings, they thought that they knew what Jesus should be doing here. They were saying, go do some mighty works so that people will know what you can do. They were saying things like, you know, no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. Uh, I agree with one commentator who, read, who wrote that this was probably most likely in a mocking tone. Uh, this idea of, well, since you want to be so well-known, since this is your, your goal, then why are you staying up here in Galilee? Why are you not going down to the feast? Why are you not going to Jerusalem? This is where all the major people are going to be. Why aren't you going to this? And so they had this perspective of what Jesus should be doing, and they were willing to rebuke him on it. Now, this is similar to a point we made in last week's sermon, that this idea of that sometimes we just think that we know better than Jesus. But that's exactly the position where Jesus' siblings were. They, they, they had an idea of what, what God should be doing, what Jesus should be doing. And when he wasn't doing it, they said, well, we're not going to believe in you. I wonder how many people are right now in that, that's, that's the roadblock. It's because that God didn't do something that they thought that he should do. And so they said, I'm not going to believe. Or Jesus isn't, you know, he isn't, he isn't showing up like I think he should be showing up. And so I'm just not going to believe. My friend, let me just tell you, it's fool's errand. My friend, let me just tell you that if that's your roadblock right now, just understand this, that Jesus is working the Father's plan to perfection, and we don't always have to agree with it. We don't always have to understand it even. But here, they prioritize their perspective over Jesus's, and, and maybe there's a little bit of a tone, like, well, you just lost a whole bunch of disciples, you know, that we read about in chapter 6 here, and you can't afford to lose too many more Jesus here. So you better go down there. You better do this. And so they're, they're coaching Jesus on what he ought to be doing. Can I just say that, you know, Jesus does not, and he does not, and he will not, I should say. Let me say it this way. Jesus will not be forced into a version of himself that is, he is not meant to be. Our, our wishes and our desires are not going to change Jesus one bit because Jesus is perfect. And what we want and what we think we want or our perspective is inherently flawed because of our sin nature. 
And so we follow him. Know that Jesus will not be deterred from his mission. He says, it's not my time. And I, I, I debated about making this a separate point and things like this. I, I, just parents, let me just say here that really what's going on here, because there might be a confusion of why did Jesus say he's not going to the feast and then he does go to the feast. What's going on with that? Let me just say this, is that he had to make it clear them, to them that his time of this, the ultimate declaration, his self-disclosure, the self-disclosure of who he was as the Messiah, it was not the time. This is reminiscent of chapter 2, verse 4. Remember at the, the Canaan, the wedding at Cana, and then uh, uh, Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of line. You need to do something about this. Remember what Jesus says? You remember what Jesus says? He says, my time has not yet come, right? Okay, so this is the same thing. He knew that his time where he was going to declare himself as Messiah and be killed for it, it was not ready yet. And so he says, I'm not going to do that. So it was only when he made it clear, okay, this is not the time, then he goes and then he does go to the feast, but he goes in secret. He doesn't make a big public uh, uh, a show of it. Uh, chapter 12 uh, of John, we're going to see there that then what it was is he, he defines, John tells us what that time was and that is when he's going to lay down his life. Uh, on the cross. But it wasn't that time yet. So that's the reason why he says, okay, it's not my time to do this. So it's not Jesus changing his mind here. It's not Jesus saying, okay, fine, maybe I'll do this. No, what he's doing there, he's making it clear to the brothers, this isn't the time, okay? It's not the time, and I'm not going to be pressured into this. And then only after that they had gone, then in a secret way, in a very quiet way, he does go up to the feast, okay? Because it wasn't his time. But understand this, that Jesus will never, ever be deterred from the mission, he will never be deterred from the mission. But here we see that oftentimes sometimes we, we think we know what God should be doing. We think we know what Jesus should be doing in our lives. And it's almost like we try to, to, to weaponize our faith against God. Say, well, I'm not going to believe in you unless you do what I want. That is no faith at all. That is no faith at all. And so I don't know, maybe someone here is, is struggling with that a little bit. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe you say, well, I'm a Christian, and so I, I do believe in him. But, you know, we can still end up like Jesus' siblings in the sense of say, you know what, I'm pulling back. You know what, I, I don't know about this. And, and, and be a little miffed at God for a while. Let me just encourage you, just repent. And just say, God, I, I don't understand what's going on here. And maybe some of you are walking through some very challenging, hurtful painful things. And so I'm not trying to make light of that by no means. But what I am trying to remind you is that Jesus has never deterred from his mission. And even if it's difficult, it's still going to be good. It's still going to be good. Now, it may not be easy, but it's going to be what is right. And so if we ask him the question, how could we end up like Jesus' disciples here? Well, we prioritize our perspective over Jesus's perspective here. Well, there's one other way. There's one other way that we could uh, uh, be like Jesus' siblings here in John chapter 7, and that is by enjoying the pageantry of Christmas but missing the person. And I just chose Christmas here because we're in that season right now, but we can make it more general if you wanted to make the point. But for, since we're in this season, I made it specific to this season here. We could become like Jesus' brothers here in John 7, 5 by enjoying the pageantry of Christmas but missing the person. You see, the brothers, they were going to the feast as required. They were enjoying the pageantry of all that. There, it was a great time of celebration. It was a time to go up there and, 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 and reenact some of these things. And it was a great time for, for Jesus' siblings, particularly his brothers, to go to Jerusalem and do this. 
They enjoy the pageantry of it. But you know, Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the Messiah. And the whole point of the celebration was really to point to Jesus, and they totally didn't believe in Him. John makes it abundantly clear. They do not believe in Him in this moment because they were enjoying all the trappings. They were enjoying the traditions. They were enjoying all the other things, but they missed the person. They missed Him. So we can go through the motions of Christianity. We can come to church, and we can sing the songs, and we can read the scriptures, and we can enjoy the candle lighting for the Advent and all the traditions, and we can enjoy the decorations, and we can enjoy all these things. And yet, we can still miss the person. And please, I'm just begging us today that we do not do that. We enjoy the pageantry. It's good. But we do it in, to only to the extent that it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, it's easy for us to, to go through the motions, like I said. And let me just say this, that, and this is where, you know, maybe I'm feeling a little feisty today. I don't know. But, you know, if, if you are not planning on attending a worship service on Christmas Sunday this year because you want to stay home and open presents with your family, you have enjoyed the pageantry, but you've missed the person. Now you say, wait a minute here, wait a minute here. We're going to read the Christmas story. Well, that's great, that's good, that's good. I'm glad you do that. And I didn't say that you had to be here. You know, you travel, be with family and things like this. But every year, you know, whenever Christmas falls on a Sunday, people are like, are we still going to have church service? Yeah, we are. What other day would be more appropriate than to have this, right? Okay, so again, you say, boy, Jeremy came meddling today, right? Yeah. I have to do it once in a while, all right? But in all seriousness, in all seriousness, and I'm not trying just to pad numbers for us here. It's for your benefit. It's for the idea of worshiping Christ on the day that we should worship Him. So anyway, the point is, is that if we want to be like Jesus' sibling here, we can, we can do it in multiple ways. Jesus knows that one of the things I take from this, he knows what it's like to be rejected. That was the text that David read for us is that, you know, Jesus said, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. And did you notice what he added at the end? And in his own household. Do you think Jesus was thinking about his siblings when he said that? I do. I think he, he, he had his, his brothers and possibly sisters, half-siblings in mind when he says a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and even in his own house. Yeah, this is how, this is, this is how we can become like this. He knows loneliness. He knows rejection. And some of you may be feeling some loneliness during the holidays right here. Let me just encourage you that Jesus understands right where you're at. And so let me also encourage us, let's not be the person who just knows a lot about God, a lot about the Bible and Jesus, but we do not truly know Him. Okay, taking a longer time for this first point here. Now we're going to go to the second point, which I've told you is the exact same point. And you say, no, why, why, why are you doing this? Because here's the beautiful thing about the story of Jesus' siblings. It doesn't end here. It doesn't end here. 
Okay, thankfully, the story of Jesus' skeptical siblings has another chapter to it here. In Acts chapter 1, and do the time, I won't turn there, but if you're taking notes, just write Acts 1.14. We see here Jesus is resurrected. He's been crucified. He's been in the grave for three days. He's now resurrected. He makes an appearance to a bunch of people. He even appears to James, which I'll mention here in a few minutes, and then one of his brothers, and then uh, uh, he ascends in Acts chapter 1. So he goes up to be with, in, in heaven with the Father, okay? Angel says, what are you doing? Go out there and do your mission that Jesus has given them to do. In chapter 1 of Acts, in verse 14, we read about the disciples in a room praying and praising God. And do you know who's with them? Mary and Jesus' siblings. That's cool. That's great that now we see there's a chapter here, another chapter in their lives. And so the first part of the sermon is kind of like negative and kind of a downer. Like, how could you be like them? Well, there's ways that we can do that, right? We can miss this. But here in the last couple minutes, last few minutes here that I have, is I just want to show you how could we be like this version of Jesus' siblings here? Well, the ones that are praising God, the ones that are praying here. Well, uh, number one, the resurrection must be a defining moment for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7. Here we have this text where it says that talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and almost in passing, Paul writes in there, he says that Jesus, he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to the apostles, and then he appeared to James as well. And then to uh, 500 people all at one time. Now, there's, there's a several different James in the New Testament here, and trying to keep them straight sometimes can be a little bit difficult here. But th- just so you know, that it, I'm, I'm convinced that this is James, and, and scholars are convinced that this is James as the half-brother of Christ that Jesus talked to in the resurrection, because there'd be no reason, because the other two James, they're, they're in the disciple group. So there would be no reason for Paul to make a distinction if he's talking about the disciples when he just said that he appeared to the disciples, and then now he also appeared to James. And so he's saying that this is the James is not one of the disciples, but he's the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Later on, James is going to go to be a pillar in the church. In Acts chapter 15, we see his leadership there. We have a book of James that this sibling wrote. We have a book called Jude that one of Jesus' half-siblings wrote here. So James and Jude were written by Jesus' half-siblings. Now, you've got to ask the question, what happened here? Well, I'll tell you what happened. That, that phrase that Paul says that Jesus appeared to James had to be absolutely life-changing for James because they did not believe beforehand, but now they believed. I don't know what that conversation looked like, but could you imagine? I mean, use your, use your imagination for a second here. The older brother, resurrected from the dead, sees his younger brother who did not believe in him. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is perfect, because if it were me, there'd be a lot of taunting, there'd be a lot of I told you so's, you know, that would be, that's not what happened. Jesus is loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's kind, he's perfect. He wasn't sinning against his brothers. But what he was, I don't know what they talked about. That's one of those conversations I would have loved to, to have a recording of, or something, just to watch that. But I don't know what they talked about, but all I know is that when James saw his brother risen from the dead, it changed everything. It changed absolutely everything. And so the resurrection has to be a defining moment for us. 
Why should it be defined in open? Because that's when God showed his wrath against your sin, that that could be satisfied. So he's, God's wrath is against our sin because sin needs to be punished. But when Jesus rose from the dead, that was saying that his wrath is satisfied if we believe in Jesus Christ. That's great news. Uh, uh, that Jesus took away the insurmountable hurdle that separates you and God. That's the resurrection here, that we long for a better life. We long for something different than this. We don't want the pain of sin and death anymore on this earth. And one day, as we talked about in our catechism question, one day the earth will be restored. And the reason why we have hope in that, according to the Bible, is that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul is very clear, we are of all men most miserable. We have no hope without the resurrection. This is why the resurrection has to be a defining moment in our lives. All hope of, a, of, a, of an eternal life, of a better life for all eternity, a life free from sin, free from this, is rest on the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead, that he rose again. So it's just so important. So if we want to be like this version of Jesus' siblings here, the resurrection has to have changed us. We have to be someone who believes in that and believes that Jesus Christ conquered sin and death. There's another way is that, you know, our, our, our perspective of Jesus must change. In, in, John, in James 1 and Jude 1, we have similar uh, um, uh, statements here. In James 1, we, we see this. It says, let me get there. It says, James, a servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude writes, starts his, again, these are half-brothers of Jesus. says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, okay, here. And then later on, he's going to talk about uh, the salvation that Jesus brings here. And so the perspective of Jesus must change. Both James and uh, uh, Jude refer to Jesus in a sense of lordship. James is very abundantly clear and calls him his Lord. Jude talks about salvation and mercy of Jesus. Christ. Jude attributes the salvation of Israel in the exodus from Egypt. He attributes that to Jesus. He says this, and this is in um, uh, verse 5 of Jude. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, and afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So he, he attributes the exodus, the salvation of of the uh, Israel to Jesus here. He understands who he really is. He understands that he wasn't someone that just was born ahead of him in the, uh, uh, in the, in the lineage of his family tree. No, this was someone who is without birth. This was someone who was eternal and someone who pre-existed before he was born of the Virgin, uh, of Virgin Mary. That He was someone who existed eternally. He sees them as bringing salvation to Israel back in the Exodus. And so this is their perspective of Jesus has radically changed that he is Lord and someone worthy to follow. And so both James and Jude are leaders in the church and they become willing to die for Jesus. It's so different than the description of these brothers in John 7 verse 5, isn't it? So different. Absolutely different. So the question that we got to ask ourselves is, are you like James and John here? Is Jesus Lord of your life? That's the question we got to wrestle with, right? We got to wrestle with is, is, is Jesus truly the Lord of my life where I'm willing to, 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 to sacrifice, where I'm willing to follow him, where, where, where what he says goes, and I'm not you know, putting my plans and, and my burdens on him and saying, okay, you must do this in order for me to believe in you. No, no, no. It's more about us following him. And so the perspective 
of Jesus must change. But not only the perspective of Jesus must change, but our perspective of ourselves must change as well. Again, I go back to James 1 and Jude 1. James 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls himself a servant of God. Bond servant, doulos is the word there, this idea of slave, someone who is completely wrapped up in the will of someone else. This is how James describes himself. You know how Jude describes himself? The same way. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. What I love about Jude's particular uh, uh, introduction there is that he's not invoking the brother of Jesus there to give him credibility. He, he could have been, I mean, you know, how tempting would that be? To say, you know, by the way, you know, I, I'm the half-brother of Jesus here, you know. I, I share some of his DNA. Uh, you know, they didn't know about DNA then, but you and I do. And, but the point is, is that that's how he could have introduced himself. But no, he doesn't. He introduced himself as a servant of Jesus, but with a put him in family context, brother of James. You see, his perspective of himself had changed. Both James and Jude, instead of seeing themselves as someone who knew more than their brother, someone who could give him advice, someone who could tell him that, oh, you should go do this. If you want to be successful in your ministry here, why don't you go do this? They transformed from that to I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. What he says, I do, without question. You see, this is how we can be that version of the brothers here. So are we a servant of Christ? What does this look like? What does it look like to to see him as Lord in your life? Those are questions you should wrestle with. Do we just do what he tells us to do? Time has escaped me. But I wanted to say this, that there will come a moment in everyone's life when they must choose whether or not to follow Jesus. And I'm convinced that for some of you, that moment is now. Everyone's going to have to make this decision. Are you going to follow Christ? Is he going to be Lord of your life? Are you going to repent of your sins and follow him? Everyone has to wrestle with that. And I don't know everyone's spiritual condition here, but I just know that I'm just convinced that today's the day for somebody. And I can't explain that. And so, and I don't claim to have special revelation from God or anything like that. I'm just saying we all have to wrestle with that. Please don't let another Christmas go by by being content with the pageantry of it, but missing out and not truly knowing the person. Please don't let another Christmas go by by insisting that Jesus, he prove himself to you. Know that Jesus can transform anyone in an instant. And so here's another application here, how Jesus transformed his brothers. Some of you have been praying for family members for years and years and years. Don't stop. Don't stop. In an instant, God can transform their lives. That's what he did with his brothers. So don't stop praying for them. Then here's the other plea on the flip side of this. Can I encourage you to not be the unbelieving family member this Christmas? And I'm asking for false pretense. This has to be genuine. But don't be that unbelieving person. What, what are you waiting for? Jesus is what? you need. If you have questions about that, you, you talk to me afterwards. But here's the point is that the Bible is very clear. The Bible says that we have a sin problem that separates us from God. Every one of us has sinned. And the only way that we can have forgiveness of that sin is by what Jesus did on the cross. Because he lived a life of perfect obedience, a life that you and I could never live. 
And he died a death that he didn't have to die, and he rose again. And the Bible says if we call upon the name of the Lord, we ask him to forgive us our sins, he will forgive us our sins, and he will save us from our sins. That's the message why we're here. And we want you to believe in that. Maybe there's someone here today that you've never asked Christ to save you from your sins. Let me just say, today is the day. And boy, I would love to talk to you more about that afterwards. So here's, as I wrap this up, which version of Jesus' siblings are you? Are you the John 7 version? Or are you the Acts 1.14 version where they're praying and praising God? Which one are you? Are you content with knowing about Jesus but not submitting to him as Lord? Or are you utterly transformed by the resurrected Jesus Christ? Do you know that following Jesus is not only the right thing to do, but it's the best thing to do? That's one thing I, I try to tell teens when I teach them in my classes and things like this is that... Um, Following Jesus, just remember this, following Jesus is not just right, it's best. Which version are you?